we have inherited a big house, a great world house in which we have to live together, black men and white men, Easterners and Westerners, Gentiles and Jews, Catholics and Protestants, Muslims and Hindus, a family unduly separated in ideas, culture, and interests, who, because we can never again live without each other, must learn somehow in this one big world house to live with each other. Welcome to The World House, a podcast inspired by Martin Luther King Jr. and his vision of a just and peaceful world. I'm Dr. Claiborne Carson, director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute here at Stanford. And I'm Dr. Mira Foster, director of the Liberation Curriculum, our educational program here at the King Institute. On April 3rd, 1968, just one day before his assassination, Martin Luther King Jr. delivered the famous I have been to the mountaintop speech. I would argue that next to the I have a dream speech, this is probably the second most famous speech, mostly because it sounds very much like a review of King's life and also a prophecy about the end of it. Clay, let's talk about the context and the content of the speech before we move on to its significance. Well, I think we need to mention, first of all, he comes to Memphis in order to help the sanitation workers protest uh, against the, their low wages. They're on strike. He came in, in March of 1968 and gave a, a speech that was very encouraging to them. And they wanted him back. Um, there's a lot of resonance uh, about his relationship with James Lawson, who was also one of the uh, ministers in Memphis uh, supporting the sanitation worker strikes. And Lawson had been one of his first advisors about uh, nonviolence um, because Lawson had spent time in India, came back in the 1950s, and was a uh, significant advisor uh, to not only to Martin Luther King, but to many of the students who led the Freedom Rides of 1961 uh, so, and, and the sit-ins of 1960. So I, I think that one of the reasons why he comes is that he sees this as uh, an important event, certainly for the Poor People's Campaign. The sanitation workers were poor. They were struggling to gain recognition and, and better wages. But I think also because uh, they represented one of the ways in which he felt that the civil rights gains of the mid-1960s had left out the poor people and uh, he needed to identify with the strike. And he felt that this was a, a way of, of building uh, his broader Poor People's Campaign, which would culminate uh, during the summer of 1968 uh, in a planned uh, occupation, I guess, of the uh, National Mall until Congress and the nation decided to do something about the issue of poverty. So King came there because he, he felt that this was uh, something that he couldn't avoid. He used the metaphor of the Good Samaritan story, and uh, which takes place on Jericho Road going to Jerusalem. And it's a story about the importance of stopping to help the wounded stranger um, who is left beside the road probably after being robbed, and the person who stops and helps the person who needs aid, makes sure that he's taken care of, and so for King, 
going to Memphis was kind of like helping the person in need. Uh, he has a lot of resistance from his own staff about whether this detracts from the Poor People's Campaign, but he says it's part of the Poor People's Campaign. If I don't stop in, in Memphis, then what does it mean to say that we are trying to, to help those who are poor and those who need uh, assistance? So he comes, and once he's there, he finds that he's kind of stuck there because uh, in late March, there's a, a march, there's violence associated with it, he knows that if he doesn't come back and prove that there could be a nonviolent march in Memphis, um, then people would begin to question, if you can't uh, have a nonviolent campaign in Memphis, you know, how are you going to bring lots of poor people to Washington and have this nonviolent occupation of the National Mall? So he feels that he has to prove something by coming back to have another march. And that's what he's looking for when he comes to Memphis. Uh, now, with respect to the speech itself, he did not intend to uh, speak there. He was not feeling well. It was a very uh, stormy night. He wanted to just get some rest that evening. But when his colleagues get to uh, Mason Temple, they find that it is crowded with very enthusiastic sanitation workers who want to hear from Martin Luther King. And they call him at the hotel and say, you've got to come. They're, they're looking for you. They're not waiting to hear us. And so he comes and gives this impromptu speech, which, as you said, is one of his great speeches. I compare it to the speech he gave in Montgomery in, on December 5th, 1955, on the first night of the boycott. And in both cases, in, in the Montgomery speech and in the Memphis speech, what he's trying to do is assure the people, this enthusiastic crowd on, on both occasions, that what they are doing is of world historical significance. He says in Montgomery, in the history books of the future, uh, they will have to say there lived a great people in Montgomery who had the courage to stand up for their rights. And in Memphis, again, he's, he's telling them by doing this historical overview of all the different periods of history where he might have lived, he says, Yes, of all these historical periods, I would want to be here because what's going on here is, is part of this world struggle that's going on in many places. He mentions Africa and other places where their people are struggling for their rights. So he's telling them that there's no place I'd rather be than with you tonight. And that has to be encouraging to, for these sanitation workers to hear. So I think that the speech is definitely one of his great ones. There's so much in it. And, uh, and I think that um, you get a sense that he's looking at his own life and trying to place that in historical context. So you mentioned that in both speeches, the first one and the last one, he compares the local struggle to the larger context of universal human struggle for equality and dignity. Are you saying that there is this continuity between the first and the last speech? And if so, is there anything that has changed in those 12 years that passed in between? Well, I think that one of the continuities is that King is always conscious of where the events unfolding around him fit into a larger historical context. 
that's what makes his speeches uh, resonate. We can read them now and we can still see you know, what he's getting at in terms of the importance of the African-American freedom struggle in this broad historical context of struggles for freedom around the world, uh, the human rights struggles uh, that are taking place and are still taking place. So he wants to remind people of that. And that's what makes his speeches timeless because we're always concerned about are the things that we are doing to make the world better, are they significant? Will people remember them? And uh, certainly he was right about the Montgomery bus boycott. It's in the history books. And he was right about the Memphis strike. Now, a lot of that significance um, comes from the fact that that's where King was assassinated. But I think even without that, he was bringing attention uh, to what was going on in Memphis as a way of bringing attention to the issue of poverty. You know, his last book, Where Do We Go From Here? You know, we still haven't answered that question because we haven't really looked at him as not simply a civil rights leader, but someone who was trying to bring about historic changes on issues of race relations, poverty, and of course, war. And I would like to play that excerpt where King speaks specifically about these issues. Strangely enough, I would turn to the Almighty and say, if you allow me to live just a few years in the second half of the 20th century, I will be happy. Now, that's a strange statement to make because the world is all messed up. The nation is sick. Trouble is in the land, confusion all around. That's a strange statement. But I know somehow that only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. And I see God working in this period of the 20th century in a way that men in some strange way are responding. Something is happening in our world. The masses of people are rising up. And wherever they are assembled today, whether they are in Johannesburg, South Africa, Nairobi, Kenya, Accra, Ghana, New York City, Atlanta, Georgia, Jackson, Mississippi, or Memphis, Tennessee, the cry is always the same, we want to be free. And another reason that I'm happy to live in this period is that we have been forced to a point where we are going to have to grapple with the problems that men have been trying to grapple with through history, but the demands didn't force them to do it. Survival demands that we grapple with them. Men for years now have been talking about war and peace, but now, no longer can they just talk about it. 
It is no longer the choice between violence and nonviolence in this world. It's nonviolence or non-existence. That is where we are today. Also in the human rights revolution, if something isn't done and done in a hurry to bring the colored peoples of the world out of their long years of poverty, their long years of hurt and neglect, the whole world is doomed. I'm just happy that God has allowed me to live in this period to see what is unfolding. And I'm happy that he's allowed me to be in Memphis. So I think that this is very characteristic of, of King, that he's uh, got a broad vision. That's why he, I would consider him a visionary. And... Uh, and he's always reminding us that he's more than simply a civil rights leader. He does that in his uh, speech against the Vietnam War. He answers those critics who are saying, why are you, as a minister, speaking out against the war? And he said, you haven't really known me. If you had known me as a minister, you, you would know that this was part of my sense of what needs to be changed in the world. And it always had been there. Um, but Sometimes people didn't notice it. And, and I think that that's uh, true even today. When we look back at Martin Luther King, you know, the typical description of him is a civil rights leader. And we think of him at the March on Washington. We think of him as gaining passage of civil rights legislation. But we forget that uh, perhaps the, the most meaningful part of his life came after that. He wasn't the organizer of the March on Washington. Many people were trying to achieve civil rights gains. But what was important is even after the passage of that legislation, he didn't retire. He, if anything, stepped up the intensity of what he was doing and uh, went to Chicago, ultimately launched the Poor People's Campaign, uh, which in turn brought him to Memphis. So Clay, what happens after he delivers that speech? He uh, goes back uh, to the Lorraine hotel. Next day, of course, as he was preparing to go out for dinner, he walks out on the balcony and he's assassinated. So his life comes to a sudden end. And I, I think this leads people to you know, read meanings into the Memphis speech. Was he aware that he might die? I don't think he had an immediate awareness, even though he was aware of all the threats against his life. I think it in some ways, though, he always knew that the danger of being a civil rights leader. He had come close to assassination way back in the 1950s. He had been physically assaulted on several occasions and probably was, uh, well, definitely was aware of the threats against his life because he talked with his parents uh, shortly before going to Memphis about the dangers he, he faced and had that conversation with them that he, he might not survive. So of course he's aware, but he could not have been aware that it would happen the next day. And, um, and that's, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why I think that 
when we look back at these speeches, we shouldn't read too much meaning into that as, as forecasting his assassination. I, I think he did see him, himself in the Moses role of leading people to the promised land and always understanding that he might not get there himself. So if King knew that he was in danger, and I suspect that perhaps his colleagues knew that as well, and his family members also, why didn't he have security around him? Well, I think that's the question that should have been probably directed at the police force and, and forces and the places where he went. Um, I don't think they gave enough attention to the need for security around him. Um, he was in a very insecure location in a exposed room in, in a hotel uh, where the balcony was uh, in full view of the uh, surrounding um, buildings. I, I think that there was a sense in the FBI that this was not an important uh, matter for them to protect King, to work with local police to protect him. Instead, the FBI used its, its agents to try to destroy him as a leader, try to disrupt his activities. The same would be true of the military intelligence who came to uh, Memphis, as we later learned. They were uh, right across the street from uh, Martin Luther King when the assassination took place. But they were there to prepare for perhaps the breakout of a disorder in, in, in Memphis as, as they were assigned to other American cities during the period after Watts and after the Detroit Rebellion and the uh, Newark Rebellion of 1967. You know, they were expecting another long, hot summer. Uh, so that's what they were concerned about. They were not concerned about protecting King. So I think that when we look back, it's easy to understand how vulnerable he was. And I'm, I'm not so sure that anything would have protected him from all the threats. I mean, after all, this is a decade when a president of the United States is assassinated. Uh, so there's no way of completely protecting him. But I think they could have done a much better job of, of focusing their attention on the racists who not only killed Martin Luther King, but killed many other uh, civil rights activists, including the four little girls in Birmingham. So I think that their priorities were simply um, misplaced. What do we know about his assassin, James Earl Ray? Well, the first thing I would say is that um, the King family never completely believed that story, and they actually decided that James Earl Ray was not the assassin. Um, I disagreed with that. Um, I think he was, but I think that he was part of a larger plot and that uh, many other people wanted Martin Luther King dead. I did go to Memphis and testify in the trial that they used as primarily as a means of getting on the record uh, a lot of the conspiracy ideas about uh, King's assassination. Uh, one I was particularly interested in because, not because I, I think that the military intelligence was responsible for his assassination, but I think American people should know that this emphasis on trying to stamp out black violence led the government to ignore the risks 
and the danger to Martin Luther King and instead see him as simply a target of surveillance. And I think that the people who were involved in that were never really investigated. So I, I think that the trial was very useful in terms of getting a lot of details about the targeting of Martin Luther King by the FBI and military intelligence. But I, I don't think that they really add to the story of how James Earl Ray, in my view, did pull the trigger that uh, killed Martin Luther King. When and how did you hear about his death? Well, f for me, it came soon after, uh, I, I think I might have mentioned in a, in a previous podcast that I, I left the United States um, when I was drafted with the idea that perhaps not coming back to the United States. I, I left in the fall of 1967. And for a variety of reasons, um, uh, felt I had to return. My wife was very sick and needed to come back to the United States. And that was right, uh, right before the assassination. So in some ways, learning about the assassination was, you know, my first uh, first major event that happens after my return. <laughs> so part of my, my feeling at the time was, I came back to this, you know, this is, this is the United States that I left. To me, it was uh, quite disturbing. You know, I admired Martin Luther King a great deal. I had seen him at the March on Washington, and it just seemed like his death and his assassination was symbolic of what was happening in the country. And uh, right after the assassination, my wife and I came back to Los Angeles and we were there when um, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. And so it was, it was a reminder that something important was happening in the world and it wasn't good. It, was, uh, it seemed like the, the world was coming apart in some ways. You know, those two disturbing events did not leave me with a lot of hope for America. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I was not alone in those kinds of feelings, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Now, we know from our previous podcast that the last book that King wrote was Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community. So I do want to ask you, you know, where did we go from that moment of King's assassination? And perhaps more importantly, where should we go from here, from now, from today? Well, as I said, I don't think we've made a, a great deal of progress since uh, King's assassination. I think many of the issues that were current then, poverty, police brutality, um, racism, perpetual war, these are issues that King dealt with that haven't been resolved. We haven't really come much closer to you know, answering his question, where do we go from here? I don't think we ask ourselves that question enough. And I, I think that if he were around, he would be constantly pestering us <laughs> with that. I, I don't think he would be satisfied with the way the world is. I think that's one of the hopeful aspects of what has happened in, during the period of Black Lives Matter protests. Uh, to me, that's uh, a beginning attempt to try to address some of these these issues that have, were left unresolved after King's death. Uh, I think he would be very proud of the young people who have 
brought new energy into the struggle for human rights and social justice. But I think uh, we're still trying to to um, clarify where what direction we're heading. Uh, where do we go from here? And I think that that should lead us to look at more critically at the way King is viewed by by many people as simply some a civil rights leader. I think he was much more than that. I think that his his vision was much broader than that. Mm-hmm. Since this is the last episode of this series, I do want to <clears throat> ask you, what would you like our listeners to take away from these episodes and from these discussions about King's life and his vision, his legacy? Well, I, you know, the title that I gave to the American Prophet uh, courses is seeing him as a prophetic figure, but also understanding his inner life, what motivated him, you know, the, the religious ideas, uh, the visionary ideas about change. And I think that linking those two, you know, the, the ideas that he develops as a young person growing up and going to seminary and, and trying to resolve his religious doubts, I think are very closely related to the global vision that emerges during his life. You know, I think that uh, he understood that throughout history, people have been trying to find a way to build a more just and peaceful world. And it's, it's a big challenge. And that's where I think his optimism that the way to address that challenge is through nonviolent activism. You know, to me, he kind of continues Gandhi's legacy. And he left a legacy for us. Of he's, he's saying there is a way we can um, make the world better, but it's going to take a lot of struggle. And we need to answer his unanswered question. That's our challenge. You listen to Dr. Claiborne Carson and Dr. Mira Foster and the World House. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share it. And if you would like to find out more information about this or any other episodes, visit the Liberation Curriculum on our website at kinginstitute.stanford.edu.